Hello everyone. Welcome to the Middle Road with Nishant Malhotra for another riveting podcast. Today I talk to Larry Johnson from United States of America who is a fundraising guru within the sustainable development sector. A graduate of Yale University, Larry is the author of the award-winning book The 8 Principles of Sustainable Fundraising and based on the Wall Street Business Network ranked among the top 15 fundraising consultants in the united states larry specializes in nonprofit development fundraising and philanthropy and serves on multiple nonprofit and corporate boards significantly the philanthropic council of the charter center the philanthropic arm of jimmy carter the 39th president of united states this podcast focuses on the importance of relational fundraising and philanthropy within the social ecosystem and shares tips for everyone a very warm welcome great to have you on the platform it's a pleasure nishant thank you for inviting me the fantastic thing is larry stays with his wife near boys idaho and loves outdoor activities like riding hiking skiing horse riding and snowshoeing in the rocky mountain I you also were great enough to you know share one of the photographs it was just lovely out of the world very picturesque yeah I, I start you know you've done so many things you 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 worked you've worn multiple hats now today when we discuss the most significant aspects of the companies within the social ecosystem fundraising would be right there on the top but the the most quintessential question when i ask you what drove you to choose fundraising as a career after your degrees in electrical engineering you have, you have a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering well um i am i'll take the example of uh, steve jobs when he said it's really difficult if not impossible to connect the points going forward but you can always connect them looking backward and um so i do have the electrical engineering degrees i also have the theological degree which is the relational side and uh for many fundraisers and i'm one of those uh, you got got into the business as a mid career shift it was something that they grew to like or understand as they got a little older and for me uh i was an um uh, an alumni volunteer uh from my alma mater and uh, i was enjoying it well i was working for uh, westinghouse which is was a large corporation i'm not a corporate guy per se and someone said to me you know larry referring to my volunteer service you can do this for a living and that was a revelation to me <laughs> and so i began to investigate it and yes it's true and i was very very blessed uh because i began my fundraising career working for ketchum which at that time was uh, the world's largest fundraising consultancy the oldest and uh, i really i worked for them for 7 years and i learned the business primarily from the senior people that were working there so that's how it came to be and so when you're in the right place you really know you're in the right place okay that's great you have also published a book it's a award award winning book the eight principles wherein you share your mantra on the eight steps for a holistic fundraising initiative now there is uh, some of, it's very interesting statistic you have you have mentioned that 90% of all the philanthropic dollars in the us are from individuals so from your experience how true you think uh, this is across globally well let's go back and look at what philanthropy is philanthropy is about people investing in other people that's really what it's about um and so 
yes, in the United States, if you combine all the sources of philanthropy, which would include living individuals, deceased individuals, bequests, um, organized foundations, and corporate gifts, those are sort of the categories that they're recorded in. If you look at all that, about 90% of it comes from individuals, either through individuals that are currently alive, through bequests, or through their own individual's family foundations as opposed to an independent foundation. And, uh, and th the reason for that is, is that the philanthropic impulse is an individual one. So even when you're looking at a corporate gift or an independent foundation gift, the procedures are more standardized, they're more structured, but it's still people that are involved. So it's ultimately a relational process. So to answer your question, the yes, I think in other parts of the world, as their philanthropic markets begin to mature, you're going to see the same sort of pattern. Now, right now, in some places like India, for instance, uh, individual giving is small, and that's because historically it's not been stressed. I think you're going to see that begin to change with some of the changes in the laws in India and some of the economic factors that are driving it. But yes. I think yeah, philanthropy is also getting big. I've seen, you're correct. I mean, it's much more bigger in the Western world, but uh, it's sort of starting to you know go up there and around Asia. Well, so when you're talking about sustainable fundraising, alignment of the mission and the vision of the social actor is very critical, as you uh, mentioned within your framework. Now, this is universally true. However, we like to articulate your thoughts here, maybe supplemented by lucid examples when you when you talk about uh, this relationship. Um, well, yes, because principle is donors are the drivers. And what that means simply is that donors are the engine, the vectors behind philanthropy, whether they're individual donors or they're corporate donors, they're driving this engine. And then so that their values, um, what they're looking for is what the organization should begin to identify so that when it works best, uh, I, as a nonprofit or an NGO, I'm looking for individuals or corporations or other entities out there who share my values and my goals. And so the key is when the two are merged together. And that's why it's the case. Um, did that answer your question? Yeah, but do you have any example from practical life where you, you could share sort of, you know, which could help hmm. connect the dots which you mentioned? Let me see here. Here's one. Um, historically, um, uh, the March of Dimes, which is an organization in this country, uh, was established for the um, uh, fight of polio. And of course, polio in this country was defeated in the early 50s with the introduction of the vaccine. And so then the original mission of the March of Dimes was satisfied. All right. So, but instead of going away, for instance, they could have said, okay, we've done our job. Let's, let's you know, disband, do something else. They decided as an organization to pivot their mission to one of overall birth defects, you see. So it was a different, it was a wider, broader mission, and they shifted it. So when they did that, they had to begin to engage donors on that new basis. And that meant identifying a, different, a somewhat different pool of potential supporters that saw that as their mission. There's an example of how a major, a major nonprofit actually shifted their mission with donors. Okay. You uh, mentioned a lot on the relationship with donors and givers. So when you design a campaign, do you always work on building up a collaborative model, which is finding the mission of the venture with that of the donors? 
you have some sort of example where you know you fine tune as a donor i go okay maybe we don't have the exactly same sort of vision but let's fine tune it the way that the way that works best nishant is uh, building a nonprofit organization that's successful financially over time uh, is what I would call an inside-out affair. Uh, you begin with those people that are closest to you, both by sharing your values and your mission and then also their relationship with the organization. And once you have that core, then it's not a question of so much redefining yourself for donors. It's not that. It's a question of finding like-minded people who share the mission you've already established. See the distinction I'm making? What, okay, so, and but is, is, is there a scope that we could realign some of the mission or vision? Let's say it's not 100% match, but you say, okay, there's a scope, there's an overlapping subset here. Let's go ahead and we can do something. Well, yes. I mean, you're going to have, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, first of all, philanthropy is an elastic variable. There's plenty of money out there, number one. Uh, in this country, hundreds of millions of dollars are left on the table every year. And the reason is because donors are not engaged properly. They're not you know, brought in properly, which I think addresses a little bit of what you're talking about. So uh, it's not a matter of flipping who you are or reinventing yourself. It's a matter of identifying the people who share what you're trying to achieve. It's, it's, that's a little, different, a little different task. You have worked with multiple set of actors. There are so many actors within the uh, social ecosystem. You, you worked in university. You worked in the Niagara University. You were with College of Idaho. Now, Ben, you're also serving as a board member on the philanthropy council of the Charter Center. What do you think are the nuances, differences, uh, how you interact and in their giving different actors? Well... You know, I'm uh, I'm sure some would disagree with me, but I think there are more similarities than there are differences. <laughs> I mean, uh, the difference, of course, is in the mission. The differences are somewhat cultural or geographical, um, but fundamentally, what drives the engine is the same thing, and that is people coming together to accomplish something that they could not do alone. That's the critical piece. Whether you're on the organizational side or you're on the donor side, you know, neither group can do what can be done together alone. So they have to come together in relationship with each other. And this is so very important when it comes to raising money because many, many nonprofits, well-meaning nonprofits, you know, their model is, is their mental model is different. They think, Fundraising is a matter of going out to get the money and bringing it back to their organization to do what they want to do. That's not what it is. I mean, they'll be somewhat successful, but they'll never get the kind of success they could get if they instead their mental model was, all right, how can we attract donors to us and together we make something happen that we couldn't do alone? And that means, of course, involving donors in a way that some organizations, they kind of like to, they like the money, but they don't want the relationship. It doesn't really work that way, not for very long. You know? The pandemic, the COVID-19 has been a huge disruptor. So when you think about, uh, you talk a lot about relationship, which is so important between the donor and the giver. 
Now, how do you think it's going to change, you know, within the donor community? What sort of behavioral changes you will do? For example, you had Warren Buffett and uh, Mackenzie Scott, you know, she dedicated a lot of money, donated a lot of money this year in a very different manner. So the times maybe have changed. Uh, what changes do you think nonprofits and social entrepreneurs have to incorporate within the changing times? First of all, I want to give reassurance to a lot of nonprofits that think this that this virus has somehow um, shrank or diverted their potential philanthropic base. That's not the case. What we've seen in this country is that giving for all causes, for all types of organizations, has given has has risen. Yes, there's specific people who are attracted to fighting the virus, and so they are focusing their dollars on that. That's good, but also. Others have stepped up their their donations so that the, organiza- the, the organizations and the missions they really hold dear will continue. Now, in terms of long-term changes, I think what you'll probably see is more of a use of online tools like what we're using today, for instance. Um, you'll see some of that. You'll, you'll see less dependency, hopefully, and I'm saying hopefully, on large-scale um, fundraising events. Um, events, uh, and, and we could talk about events for a long time, but events in this country are largely misused. Um, they're used as primary revenue generators, and that's not really the best use of events. The best use of events is to draw people into your organization, but that's, but they're often used just to generate revenue. And there's lots of reasons why that's not a good idea, but that's where a lot of organizations are, but that's going to change. Uh, and then also, as I said, more online features. But what will not change are people's desire to help other people and people's desire to be in relationship with other people. That is as old as creation. And one of the things, I know we're going to talk about India a little bit, a little bit later on, but that's one of the things as I've gotten to know the Indian people that really attracts me is that the Indian culture is primarily a relational culture. They really want to get to know you. And that, to me, is very fertile ground for for very strong philanthropy if it's approached in the right way. You came out with uh, quite a few uh, interesting details. You know, you came out with a lot of insights. Now, my question now, as, as a follow-up to what you said, you, you have said that the sort of donation and the giving has not gone down. You think more number of donors have come in or the ticket size among the donors has gone up? Of course, healthcare is one sector where a lot of donations have come in around the world, and that's fair enough. But uh, when you talk about philanthropy going up, the giving going up, is because more number of individuals are coming or the ticket size, like I said, as we think it's, it's gone up? Well, it, it kind of depends on what sector you're looking at. Um, I think in, in some sectors, the number of donors, at least in this country, I can't speak for India, mm-hmm. um, but in this country, the number of donors in some sectors has gone down, even as the total has gone up. Um, that, um, that distresses me a little bit because although... Um, historically, um, in terms of dollars or, or rupees, the bulk of the funds come from a relatively small group of people. That's always been the case. Um, they alone will not drive a healthy philanthropic program. You have to have the smaller donors. They are just as important, but for a different reason. And the reason why is, is if you have a lot of small donations that are broadly distributed, uh, you have community legitimacy. You have community support, which is critical 
to maintaining long-term sustainability. And at the same time, the larger donors, those who have much more uh, resource and can be more generous, be not more generous, but they can give more. And generosity is a matter of percentages, not a matter of dollars. That, that then they drive the, the, the amount, but they don't, they don't create the legitimacy. And, and that's why both big and small donors have to be a part of the mix. Another very important uh, statistics which I need to share. Now, there's a lot of, we talked about behavioral change. There's also been a rise of Generation Z. Um, Generation Z are those who are born between 1995 to 2010. And they mm -hmm. comprise about 20% of the working population. Now, this particular uh, generation, Generation Z, relies a lot also on the social media. I mean, many of them. I think I read somewhere that 96% of them have a smartphone now. I think that statistics valid for us i'm not sure if that statistics for the us but you know that's a, a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah. so how do you think the philanthropy will evolve in the present times so you think a lot of technology use is coming in a lot of tech savvy ways of well here again technology will change the channels of communication um it won't change the need to communicate and uh you know with younger people one of the trends I have noticed is that when I first got into this business, which was what, 30 years ago, um, you never really got um, what I would call an outcome or effectiveness question from a potential donor unless they were giving at least in the six figures in, in US dollars. Now, now with the younger generations, you're getting those kinds of questions for relatively small donations, you know, $50 for instance, um, and what that would be, what, 500 rupees, 400 rupees, something like that. Um, I'm trying to do my math in my head, all right? And um, so, so they're demanding much more accountability from the organizations they support than people in my generation did, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. And the other thing that you're, gonna, that you're seeing more is this sort of gray area called social entrepreneurship, where it's not real, it's not, it's not true philanthropy in that sense, but it has a philanthropic driver because it's it's focused on a philanthropic cause, but they're using a business model to do it with. So that's that sort of gray area. And I think uh, you're going to see more of that as we go forward. You also feel like, isn't it, that more accountability and transparency has come by over a period of generation as the society has evolved? That is also one of the reasons, like as more technologies and enable you know there's more information out there that mm -hmm. maybe uh, on the mm -hmm. and transparency is like driving the philanthropy yeah. today yeah i mean that's the the, t the technology has been a driver for that sort of thing because you have much more information um i have a young i have a young woman that works with me and uh i'm in the I'm in the age of, you know, look it up in a book. <laughs> and so, and I'll say, Danielle, what about, you know, X, Y, Z? And she'll go, well, I'll just Google that. And I'm going, oh, really? It's <laughs> just like, okay, I've gradually gotten into it. I mean, you're having new channels of uh, like crowdfunding and other things, which are also sort of enabling fundraising. Yes, yes. What makes sense? Come to, uh, you know, the Rocky Mountain question, which is like, uh, I really want to, uh, you know, you also showed me a photograph and that I'll come a bit later. When you mentioned the importance of principle, paradigm and process for laying semblance for an effective fundraising outreach. Now, that is the three uh, parts you very specifically talked about. Now, these the this process needs to be metered for flaws. So do speak about any innovation within this segment when you're talking about. 
Well, um, in this country, and I think it's pretty typical, um, most nonprofit organizations in with regard to their fundraising are very much focused on process. How do we do this? You know, what, what method do we do? You know, how do we, you know, how do we kind of grind through it day to day? And that's okay. And that, that's ultimately where life happens. I understand that. But if you're engaging in processes, you're, you're choosing the way you're doing this without a knowledge of the universal principles that are out there. And that's what, that's what we talk about in the principles you're very likely to be doing things that are working against yourself without even knowing it, that you're kind of pushing uphill all the time. Because in fact, not understanding the, 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 right, the right principles is one, of the, is one of the primary reasons that people have such anxiety about fundraising. Oh, you expect me to go out and ask for money? Well, first of all, it's not about money. We can talk about that. It's about something else entirely. But so that when you first understand the principles of fundraising, the, those that are universal, that apply in India as well as they apply here, then you can take that knowledge and understanding and then knowing your own organization or your paradigm, you know, you know how you fit, you can choose the methods that work for you. I'll give you a very concrete example. Something I didn't know until I got, until I was approached to come to India. You know, in this country, Direct mail fundraising is really, really big. It's a multi, it's a billion dollar business in this country. You know, mailing out pieces of mail, people sending donations back. Even with the advent of online fundraising, you still have a huge direct mail business here. Uh, there's no such thing as direct mail in India that I didn't know about until I talked to them. You know, that, you know, I have friends that are Indians that live here now. Oh, Larry, you know, no, no, no. We, we would call and get the donation and then we'd send a runner out to get it and then they'd bring it back. Well, there's a difference in method there, but the principle is still operating. You see the difference? And so that's what I'm saying is, you know, the principles are universal. And then once people understand what they really are, they can create a program that works for them in their setting and make it very effective. And you think this is more on the global lines? This is not only for uh, the U.S., but sort of holds around the world globally? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and, the, and the reason for that is human nature is remarkably consistent. That's the key. Because we're talking about people here. And it, 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 it goes across cultures. It goes across religion. It goes across geography, political systems. People are people. They have the same primary motivators and desires for their lives and what they want to achieve. And so if you understand that, then these philanthropic principles are applicable, whether it's in this country or in India. Um, and then once you get, once you know what they are and really appreciate them as opposed to just repeat them, all right, then you can say, oh, okay, well, I'm in India or I'm in Africa or I'm somewhere else. So I'll have to adjust that principle with a method that works for me, you see, and that's the key. Now, you know, you talk about how the human nature is consistent around the world. Now, you're also launching your operation in India. What sort of overlaps and differences in your work you see when you compare your work in the U.S. and when you compare it uh, with your work in India? Well, I'll give you a little history. Um, I, I'm not the one who had this idea. <laughs> I was approached uh, by an individual who is now um, our representative in India. Uh, the man's name is Sachin Mihadik, or Mahadik, and he lives in Mumbai. 
And he reached out to me and he said, Larry, um, you need to bring the eight principles to India. Well, I knew very little about India and I could, I could position it on a map. I knew a little bit about your history, um, but I didn't know much more. And I was going, all right, so how's this going to work? And then, and then he explained it to me. So, you know, you fast forward many, many months, and we've been working at it for over a year now. Um, the U.S. Embassy will be sponsoring three events for us. And when the, comp when, the comp when the country opens again, probably sometime in the spring, maybe early summer, um, and one in Mumbai, one in Delhi, and one in Bangalore. So we're going to be promoting the platform through those meetings. So that how is it going to be changing? Well, first of all, uh, one thing that we've had to uh, really fine-tune is the price structure for the services. The price structure will be very different than it is in the U.S., obviously. Um, you have a lot of very, very small nonprofits there. So how do we create a delivery system that works in that environment as opposed to here? Um, you also have a CSR component in India, uh, which I think with the recent changes in legislation there, I think will become a more effective engine for doing making community changes. Um, and so one of the things that A Principles will be positioned to do is to create a communications link between CSRs and NGOs. Uh, right now, what we hear um, is that CSRs will say to us, the nonprofits don't know how to talk to us. And then the nonprofits will say, they don't, the CSRs don't know how to talk to us. And so there's this lack of understanding between the two groups. And so what the eight principles does, it provides that link. So will be working on that as well. So then our market in India will be primarily CSRs and NGOs or NGO associations. Where in this in this in this country, our market is primarily uh, fundraising coaches and and nonprofits. So it's a little bit different in the way it's delivered. Uh, but yes, so you're looking at a difference, in, and and we're going to be also we're, we're right now looking at uh, creating. Uh, we have a in this country we have, we have an advisory board, uh, an eight principles advisory board called the Fellows, and Sachin serves on that board. Um, and then we also we're going to be creating a similar group for Indians. Uh, and those are people who really understand and believe in what we're trying to achieve and are our primary advisors for India. Because uh, uh, one thing that Sachin has been invaluable for me, I don't know, you know, I'm learning the Indian culture. I'm learning about the Indian people. And he's been very, very helpful in helping me navigate that and understand it. Um, because that's what I really want to do is be able to introduce this in an effective way for them. When you look at, you talked about, you know, you're coming to India, uh, what sort of, uh, you know, figures of market size, what exactly are you looking at? Are you looking at a particular size of nonprofit where you, you think you're going to go and approach them or it's going to be uh, put in different buckets? How, how are you going to be approaching those? Well, the, uh, where we stand now, and our thinking might change a little bit before we actually get there, but right now I think what we're looking at, there's sort of three, sort of three tiers of nonprofits in, in India. The very large sort of international organizations um, that everyone's familiar with, and then the sort of the middle range, which has uh, maybe you know, enough staff and a full-time fundraiser and some other people there, and then the very small ones, of which there are a great many of those. Now, the key has been how do we make this available to those who need it most, which primarily will be the mid-range and the small range of nonprofits. So 
The mid-range will be able to probably afford this on their own, but the small nonprofits, what our current thinking there is, is a lot of these are in federations or associations. And so then the way we would do it there would be to make this material available to their association or their federation so they could disseminate it from, uh, because the, the good news is this approach is applicable whether you're a very small nonprofit or you're a big one. It's it, it, because they are principles that transcend size, culture, the thing, same things work. In fact, is, let me rewind a little bit my career. Uh, when I was working for the consulting firm, uh, we still have a handful of firms like that in this country. They have, uh, uh, their business model is very highly paid individual consultants who go personally and work with a client. Uh, that's expensive. That's really expensive. Even in this country, that's expensive. And so the kind of clients they can work with are usually the ones that are doing pretty well already. <laughs> They've got some momentum on them. And, but one thing I learned, Nishan, when I was working for Ketchum, is that what they were telling their clients applied whether you were very well healed or you're very small. It's the same principle. It's what I learned. And so one of the things I've always wanted to do in my career would be to, was to make this more widely available, this, this understanding. Because organizations don't start full-blown. They don't start really big. All right, they start small. And the ones that become large and established are the ones that follow these principles. It's that easy. And so, but if you don't know what they are, you just either you kind of fall into it or you struggle and over time, maybe get part of it. And I, I want to try to accelerate that process. Good. You shared quite a few inputs. Now, when you're looking at these nonprofits, what do you plan to, I mean, you'll be sort of training them or is it also you'll be connecting them to the donors from around the world? What we will be doing is training them how to do their own fishing. All right, that's the key. We're going to be training people to fish. And the way we deliver our material is that once we have trained someone inside that organization, and it doesn't take long, the actual training material is available to them, and they can train their own people over and over and over and over again. So actually, we have put it inside the organization, and then they can teach other people how to fish. That's the way it is. So they don't have to keep coming back to me or, or our team and say, come train us again. No, we have trained them and then they can go and train people as much as they want. And that's because of the delivery system. The actual, are you familiar with, um, with uh, Franklin Covey, Stephen Covey, who is in India? Seven Habits of... Uh, Correct. Yeah, okay. That's good. Uh, well, uh, we use a very similar delivery platform that Franklin Covey uses. Very similar where you are training people inside of an organization and then they turn and train everyone else. It's a train the trainer model. Uh, so it's a, it's a very similar model and approach. In fact, our teaching techniques are very much the same as those used by Franklin Covey. We're just teaching philanthropy. We're not teaching leadership. It's different content, but the techniques, uh, the way adults learn, uh, the way it's put together, it's very participative, very team oriented, uh, accountable action, these are the things, this is how adults learn. Um, you know, our, our training is not sitting in a hotel room or a meeting room somewhere, listening to someone drone on for two hours with slides that are, that are making your eyes glaze over. No, no, no. This is, you're working in teams, you're doing things together, you're accomplishing things, and you, you, you develop your own action plans. That's how we do this. Very different. It's like case studies from your life? Oh, yes. Part of the yes. 
we do. And then a lot of the, a lot of the teaching is say, for instance, you know, if, if we're doing a group setting and we maybe have a half a dozen organizations represented in the room or more, you know, they'll each have their own group of people, maybe five or six people that they brought. Well, then the exercises are really focused on them. They can use their own organization as the test case because they're working through it as they go. And so that they learn more about themselves and about what they need to do to be successful. Financial question. Now, you've had a lot of 30 years of experience in fundraising. What is one quality or one sort of very important attribute which you like to share with the audience, which you think is very important when any organization, I one attribute which you will say for uh, anybody to, you know. Well, you know, I think perhaps the most important thing for someone who is in a nonprofit for them to understand is that ultimately it's not about them. And when they can really understand that it's about bringing people together to accomplish something that people couldn't do alone, and it's not about them or their mission per se, they will be successful. And, uh, you know, um, nonprofit people are usually very well motivated to do what they do. They want to do good things for people, and that's great as far as it goes. But it should never get to a point where they think they're driving the bus because they're not. They need to understand that they're simply a part of a much bigger undertaking, and that is bringing people together that, that need to find a way. This is one reason why when you see, uh, uh, whether it's on a city basis or a county basis or even a nation basis, when, uh, when areas have strong philanthropic sectors, they also have strong, healthy business sectors. The two are very much tied together that when there's an emphasis on community spirit and philanthropy, that creates a very positive business climate. Uh, and then the economy grows. So it's, it's very much, very much connected. Now we come to, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, you, you stay in Boys, which is, I think one of the most beautiful places on earth. Um, America and all the cities are very beautiful. Uh, it's, you stay right next to nature. You have a lot of, uh, it's got a mesmerizing natural habitat. A lot of also outdoor activities. Do tell how, how does it relax you, and you also say how what's importance important function of nature in, in enabling clarity of thinking in your work. Well, it's very interesting that you say that because um, when I, I as I said I grew up in the eastern part of the United States, which is much more populated. People are much closer together, and the landscape is very different. When I first moved here, the thing that really struck me was the scale and the size of everything. It is so big, whether it's open spaces, the sky, the mountains, whatever it is, everything is so huge. And it gives you a sense, well, it gives you a sense of how small you are, number one, all right? And number two, but it gives you a sense of possibilities. Oh, there's potential. There's, you know, we can do new things. We can do bigger things. And I think if you look at the history of our country, you know, the, 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 the big thinkers have all sort of moved west. And I think part of that is because that the landscape creates that sort of environment for people. It's certainly done it for me. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I've been in, you know, I was in when I was working for universities and when I was working for the consulting firm, I was in big cities all the time. 
I was traveling constantly before the virus, of course, and uh, in big cities, I was in New York constantly. And all right, I'd be there for a couple of days. And then I was ready to leave. <laughs> I'm ready to come home. <laughs> and okay, fine, I'm out of there. And then I come back to where I live because this is where I can be in touch with people in a more simple way, a more scalable way. And it also gives me that feeling of, oh yeah, there are possibilities here. You know, we can do things. And then the other thing is it's much more casual out here. Um, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't worn a, uh, a dinner, I haven't worn a necktie except uh, to wear a dinner suit. And uh, since I moved out here, uh, I've got a whole, a whole closet full of Brooks Brothers suits that I don't wear anymore. This could be huge for people. I'm sure a very friendly connected there, a small community, but is it very cohesive? Uh, how's the... Yes, yes. And it's a very much a, um, a live and let live sort of environment where I live. Um, uh, people really aren't in your face. Uh, they aren't demanding certain things. Uh, you can pretty much live your own life here, which um, I, I enjoy that as well, very much so. Yeah, I come to the aha question. This is always the last question. So uh, share any uh, aha moment uh, from your life or any message. When I was looking at this, I thought of one. Which sort of brings back memories, joy to you. Whenever um, you I, I, I'll, say, I'll say this, which is sort of an aha moment. I'm sure I'll think of this as soon as we get off. But I wish I had learned far earlier in my life that the way that you're successful is to follow your personal passion. Because when I was much younger, um, I was much more of a careerist. Oh, I'm going to pursue this ladder. I'm going to climb this ladder. I'm going to make all this money. Boom, boom, boom. Um, and that was sort of driving things for a long time. And I've been pretty successful in some ways. But I think ultimately I would have been more successful, more fundamentally successful if I had realized early on what my passions really were. And so I would encourage young people that are listening to this um, to pursue their passions rather than careers. Um, the two can align, but a lot of time they don't. So that, that would be my parting shot. Okay, thank you. That, that's very thoughtful. Uh, that's insightful. You know, coming, that's that's really true. You, if, if you're doing what you really love, I think you're, you're more happier than... Uh, mm -hmm. so that's, mm -hmm. You really are. Thank you, uh, thank you Larry, uh, for, you know, uh, taking time and sharing, sharing about, uh, giving a very good perspective about uh, philanthropy, specifically in the US, about your work, your launch in India, and sharing, you know, uh, uh, small lucid examples, I, I would say, like over a period, over... over for the chat. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot for joining the middle room. It's been my pleasure, Nishant. Very much so. And when I come to India, I hope to meet you in person. Sure. I look forward to it. Do let me know when you're coming. All right. I'll keep in touch. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks.